Hi, friend. Well, I am feeling a little discombobulated today. Oh, I'm cracking open a nice monster energy zero ultra drink guaranteed to eat away at the lining of your insides. Um, yeah, so I'm feeling a little discombobulated because I had originally recorded this introduction last weekend, but there was a glitch in the studio and it um, erased both this introduction and then also a podcast I recorded um, with a very good friend of mine, which I was a little disappointed about. But, you know, I'm practicing non-attachment, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna file it away as having had happened, um, and you just won't be able to hear it. <laughs> so that being said, I need a vacation. I need a vacation from the podcast. I feel like I've been doing it for some time now. I don't dislike doing it. I enjoy it very much, but I'm getting a little weary of editing and I can feel it because I had a couple of podcasts that I was putting off editing um, and releasing um, for like months. So anyway, those are out, but there are only really two, since the one was erased, there are only really two podcasts that haven't been released now because I, I wasn't recording, um, as consistently as I was when I had first started. So, um, there's this one, which you are about to hear. And there's one other, which is a, um, uh, an editing nightmare. Let's just call it that. There are eight people speaking and I have attempted to edit it. And every time I sit down and begin to work on it, I get about 10 seconds in and I have to stop because I just, I can't, I'm just, I can't put myself in the space to, um, to edit eight particular voice tracks. So, um, yeah, so there's that. I hope everyone is doing well. It is a Saturday night here as I'm recording this. Um, and it's early in the evening. And right after I do this, I'm going to go and meet up with some friends and we are going to go dancing at the club. Now, I haven't been, I've been to a couple of bars. Um, and some of those bars have a dance floor, but I wasn't dancing. But I've been a couple, I've been to out a couple of times since. Um, we sort of have come out of the lockdown of the pandemic and things have reopened, but I have not been dancing at a club. Uh, I can't even remember because I think it was even before, you know, we the pandemic really hit us here in the U.S. It was before March. Yeah, I can't even remember. But anyway, I'm very excited because we're going to go dancing tonight and I'm going to blow off some steam. I am feeling, you know what? I am feeling fucking sexy this summer. I am feeling good. I am feeling like things are happening. I feel like I'm getting things done. Um, I also feel like I'm 
I'm doing a lot of self-care work. I'm, I'm sitting by the pool and I'm reading Young and the Collective Unconscious. I'm, I'm just doing things. So I'm very, very, I'm very um, excited about summer and all of the things that are happening. I've even bought a couple of concert tickets um, for things coming up I'm very excited about. I Today, I bought tickets to Alanis Morissette's 25th anniversary of the Jagged Little Pill album. You know. You ought to know. Yeah. Um, quintessential listening for my undergraduate college years. I believe it was pretty, it was probably like the first or second, maybe we came out like the first or second year. I can't quite recall. But also who's performing with Alanis on this tour is none other than fuck and run Liz Fair herself and the queerest of the queer garbage. Ah, ah, and I splurged and I got um, floor seats only like 12 or 13 rows back from the stage in this ginormous stadium here in Denver, Colorado. I, I spent a bit of money, but you know what? I have not spent any money on concerts for the past year and a half. Well, year. Oh, gosh, even more than a year, year and a couple of months. Um, so I, I splurged and I, yeah, I am very, very excited about that concert. Yeah. So my guest today, like I said, I've recorded this before and I, I feel like I was, I was, um, really well spoken about what I wanted to say, but now I'm just kind of like, I don't know, throwing it at the walls. <laughs> So my guest today, Rebecca, uh, Rebecca is so fabulous. We met, um, I think first back in like maybe 2011, 2012, 2011, somewhere in there. Um, and the reason that we met is through a mutual friend of ours, Eric N., who is a playwright and theater innovator, um, and just a kind and worldly human. Um, Eric vibrates on another level, um, truly. Um, so Eric was working on a cycle of plays that um, sort of uh, all tied in or kind of orbited around the theme of genocide. So not, not light by any means. Um, and I believe there were 13 plays in total, and these plays were being produced by different artists and theater companies um, all over the world, I believe. Um, and, and what was happening is that we were going to, we were doing these separately. People were doing them separately um, and producing them and putting them on in wherever they were located. And then we all came together as a sort of Ur festival at La Mama Experimental Theater Company in New York City. Um, and then over the course of, I believe it was two weeks, um, we did 13 plays in repertory. Um, yeah. So I worked on this, I worked on the play Shape, which actually I had mentioned before because um, Lady Dane, who was in episode two, I believe, two or three, 
two, I can't remember, um, was was part of the theater company that we had created together called Force Collision. And we as an ensemble had collaborated to sort of bring this play Shape to life. And Shape was really my first entry into the um, history of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre because the play... um, um, that 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 the Tulsa race massacre comes up as a significant event in the play to talk about genocide um, as it's occurred on our own domestic soil here in the U.S. Um, to Black, Brown, Indigenous people. Yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, so we worked on that play, and then and then Rebecca was one of the producers. So I met Rebecca when we finally made it to New York after having done the play in Washington D.C. We got up to New York, and then I met Rebecca, and yeah, she's just a fascinating human. I was doing some really fascinating work um, with trauma, um, as well as in theater, um, really championing. Um, uh, women's women's voices in the theater, um, yeah, and we worked uh, again together on a play about women soldiers in Afghanistan, um, which was in California. So Rebecca has had this kind of career shift, although I don't I don't know that it's really that far outside of the the sort of realm of what she was doing previously. Um, during the pandemic, she. Um, made a shift and and trained and became an intimacy coordinator for film and TV sets um, in California, in Los Angeles. And it's just a fascinating, um, kind of like a hot job, hot profession slash career that's sort of happening right now. It's getting a lot of media recognition. People are getting into it. Um, I believe they're actually working with SAG and AFTRA, which is the Screen Actors Guild Union, um, to to make it a component of that and maybe possibly unionize intimacy coordination. I don't know if they're unionizing it, so don't quote me on that. Um, But yeah, so what the intimacy coordinator does, and we talk about this in the podcast, is um, they're kind of the the sort of champion of the actor-artists who are working on sets and doing um, scenes involving intimacy. So these could be your sex scenes. These could be even kissing scenes. These could be... I also believe they deal with um, scenes with any type of like close physical contact. Um, And they're really there to kind of to keep an eye on the the actor's safety, their comfort, um, and to work in tandem with either the director or, um, I guess it would be the director who's choreographing or whoever's choreographing um, that particular scene. So very fascinating. Um, I also think it's really great, um, especially in in Hollywood, uh, with to champion. Um, Kind of women, women working today, and then other marginalized people working um, to really have their back, you know, to make them feel comfortable working on sets with other actors. So that's all I have to say about that. I mean, <laughs> I'm not an intimacy coordinator, so I was kind of giving you my brief overview from what I understand about intimacy coordination, but Rebecca does talk about it in our podcast. 
So that was my very long introduction. See, this is what happens when I don't write it out. <laughs> it's not succinct. I could probably just talk forever. Um, yeah, it kind of feels freeing just to talk and not um, be restricted around writing something out as a little blurb and then just reading it, really. So without further ado, let me take a sip of this monster beverage. Mm. I just spilled it all down the front of me. God, the night's not even begun. <laughs> Without further ado, here's my conversation with Rebecca. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. <laughs> Hold on. I need to turn up the volume. It's yeah, I, I actually did not think that I was going to have anything going on this week. And then I got hired for a job last minute. So I've been on set for three different productions in the last five days. Oh, gosh. <laughs> mm hmm. Yeah. Um, what is your. OK, so let, <laughs> let's back up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my world's changed a bit. <laughs> yeah. OK, so I want to ask you all about being an intimacy coordinator and then I want to also ask you how the hell that you got there but I feel like you were already sort of doing that work and uh, then not really um I mean I had been, I, I I discovered over COVID um what it was and started started training then but, okay yeah well let's start with how was your pandemic <laughs> <laughs> it was um uh, uh, you know, I, I, I personally cannot complain because I had it relatively easy compared to some people because right. I live by myself, don't have any kids, um, you know, financially stable enough to get through without, um, but yeah, my, my entire world dropped away. Like on my whole business that I was doing, working with companies just completely disappeared. Right. And, uh, I had to think of something else to do with my life so and you're talking about the consulting work that you were doing particularly yeah. around trauma correct i uh, know i was doing um emotional intelligence training and um and unconscious bias training with companies and i had just picked up like a bunch of new clients that wanted me to do in-person stuff and then everything just completely disappeared because right. in-person wasn't possible anymore. So I tried to do a little bit of it online with some uh -huh. clients, but it just didn't work. You can't really right. teach somebody to be emotionally intelligent unless you're like in the room with them. And well, <laughs> <laughs> I tried, yeah. but yeah, yeah. It was... But you were, you were doing um, trauma, trauma work came into your consulting arena though am i out of completely out of bounds um no i it was more focused in my my academic work was much more around trauma gotcha. um and i looked at um at trauma as like from a variety of different perspectives but i my my doctoral dissertation was on uh women uh in 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 plays <laughs> not not well uh -huh. i looked at some real life women as well but but um women in theater in in drama throughout the history of dramatic literature who commit suicide and looking at um 
how do, how do we read that body as a text and what impact does the trauma of that suicide have on the remaining characters and on the audience right. as well. So, um, so that's where I started exploring trauma, but, um, and then it, that <laughs> I always joke, it, it went from suicide to genocide when we started working on Eric N's piece. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. It was very, uh, not, not always the happiest headspace to be in, but, um, yeah. but I was always really fascinated with how, how trauma impacts um, impacts the body and impacts memory and and um, when I was working with my my corporate clients in emotional intelligence, I could definitely tell when when a disconnect an emotional disconnect was happening because of some kind of trauma. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. So define emotional intelligence as it exists, like in your work. It's it's the ability ability to to recognize and respond to emotional states in other people and in yourself so it's it's got sort of four parts to it it's being able to when i'm having an emotional response am i aware that i'm having an emotional response to something like a strong emotional response to something um which then you know if you're talking about trauma that that emotional response can be triggered by a lot more mm-hmm. things than than um, than what commonly triggers a strong emotional response in people. Um, and then once I have that awareness that I'm having an emotional response, what do I do with that information? Is this a useful place for me to be in? How can I gain control over my emotional state if it's not a good place for me to be in for what I have to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other side is recognizing when somebody else is having a strong emotional response. And, um, and then again, what do I do with that information? So Mm -hmm. that's translating now into intimacy coordination. It was like a really great background to have because I have to be really attuned to performers, um, when they're saying yes to something, when I can tell that they really Mm -hmm. don't want to say yes to it. And then it's my job to make sure that they know it's okay to say no and, it's okay if um, if they're worried about getting triggered um, by a tra- past trauma, and that we can have a game plan for how to how to navigate that on set in case um, in case they get triggered into a trauma response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's sort of it sounds um, a lot like the work that um, I've come to understand around just how our sympathetic nervous system works and how. Um, you know, when we're in that sympathetic state, we tend to be reactive and not responsive. So putting a little mm-hmm. bit of space between like, yeah, yeah, a, a little bit of awareness for like what's going on nervous system wise, and then also what we do with it. So the distance yeah. between reactive and like responsive response. Yeah. That's, that's a key to my, my emotional intelligence work with my clients is rec- knowing, knowing what the difference is between a reaction and a response. Mm-hmm. Um, a response is purposeful. A response is something you have control over, but a reaction is something that comes in the moment that, that you don't necessarily have control over. Uh, and I talk a lot about, um, you know, getting hijacked by our amygdala when, when we get hijacked by that sort of fight or flight, you you know, lizard brain that, that, um, that tells us, um, you know, that, that controls our emotional center, then our prefrontal cortex, which is our rational brain, um, goes bye-bye. It, it, it 
it leaves the picture for a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the only way to gain back control um, of our, with our prefrontal cortex is to just have time and space and breathe. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's also very much triggered in your, in your body. Um, you know, heart racing, blood pumping, your, you know, your face might, you know, you might feel the, the blood rush to your face, yeah. um, you might feel the blood rush to your arms and your fists. Cause you want to get ready to fight somebody. Um, and until you can feel those, those physiological symptoms calm down a bit, you're not going to be able to, to think rationally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being aware of when that process starts so that you can stop it before it gets completely hijacked. Mm -hmm. Um, and then realizing that, um, you know, that's not the best time to have a conversation with somebody that you're mad with <laughs> or right. to have a conversation with anybody, <laughs> let alone a person you're angry with. So, okay. So now, um, so you've gone into this work of intimacy coordination as well, intimacy coordinator, Coordinacy. What? What am, <laughs> I'm losing words today. Intimacy coordinator, isn't that it? Yes. Yes. Okay. That is it. I don't know yeah. why. Like all of a sudden, language left. Um, <laughs> I okay. So what I'm thinking is, so these are you. you you're predominantly working on film and television, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So not. Are you doing stage work? I'm not. Um, there's there is a a, a specific a couple of organizations that certify, um, stage uh, in, in the, right. in the theater, they call it intimacy direction, um, uh, to, to distinguish mm -hmm. it from the, from the title in the film world. It's very similar. Um, uh, just the, just the medium is different and honestly, film and TV pays a lot better. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. So, yeah. um, so yeah. I imagine that, yeah, I imagine that these, that the actors, you know, cause they're human beings could have any number mm -hmm. of sort of triggers or yeah. or trauma and then be and then be thrust into a situation where they're actually having to confront whatever's going on yeah. as their job like yeah <laughs> you know what i yeah. mean yeah especially if we're like dealing with a scene of se sexual assault um you know we've been talking oh, gosh, about yeah. um sort of expanding uh, I, i've been a big advocate for expanding when we're called in um, you know, not just scenes. I mean, traditionally we're only called in when there's scenes of simulated sex or nudity on screen. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that I'm a big advocate for, for using an intimacy coordinator anytime an actor could potentially be facing a, a, a trauma, um, right. or like a, a deeply intense emotional situation. And, um, you know, sometimes we do, which is great. Um, but not always. <laughs> yeah. Like and, what about uh, simulated violence or like mm -hmm. domestic violence or violence of any kind Yeah, that would seem to fall under intimate things like yeah. from my understanding. Yeah. And you know, I, I, the, I haven't been doing it for very long, but the productions that I've been working on, um, I mean, granted, they're all very supportive of their performers, which is why I'm welcomed in there to begin with. Um, you know, that usually it's either they're incredibly supportive of their performers um, or they're incredibly abusive of their performers. <laughs> and the people that are oblivious in Oof. the middle don't usually hire intimacy coordinators, right. but uh, not yet. We're, we're getting there. Um, but um yeah, like some of my productions have brought me in, you know, even if it's just like a, a quick 
touch of some kind that could, that goes beyond what's a normal way that actors touch each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we we liken ourselves to and, and SAG-AFTRA is working with us to to get us into the union under a similar title. Um, we liken ourselves to stunt coordinators. Um, because, and we like to say that just like a stunt coordinator is there to protect the actor's body, we're there to protect the actor's emotional state, um, and their, and their physical body as well. We're there to make Mm -hmm. sure they feel physically safe. Um, but yeah, so if, if there's a scene of, of sexual violence, that that's definitely a potential trigger for, for both performers, Mm um, you know, because the person that's perpetrating the violence is also being traumatized by, by having to to do that um and uh and just creating a safe space for them and having constant conversations around consent and making sure that that if they do get triggered by a trauma that we have a game plan for how we're gonna how we're gonna navigate that on set um making the directors aware that there's gonna if we need to stop we need to stop and we need to give that scene some extra space to breathe Mm -hmm. So what's it like been working on sets during COVID? Uh, <laughs> like that must be can, another added level you, of virtual. You can't see my intimacy. mask me that I've got now. It's it's <sighs> it's it can be claustrophobic because you know we're we have KN95 masks, face shields, um yeah, yeah. the whole thing. And you know, we have zones on set where you can go and take mask breaks and take your take your masks off outside and such. But right. um it's claustrophobic. Um, but now like more and more people, our, our protocols have not changed with the, with the vaccine, but like the production I'm working on now, I know all of the actors I'm working with have been vaccinated. Um, so, you know, we're, we still have to wear it because it's still policy, but, Mm -hmm. um, but we're a little less nervous about it. I think, um, yeah, makes, makes the mood a lot lighter (laughs) knowing that most of us are now there. Yeah. I mean, I imagine... (laughs) intimacy is a little bit more tough on film sets right <laughs> oh <now>. yeah <laughs> well the reason why we call ourselves intimacy coordinators um rather than choreographers or directors is because um we coordinate with a number of different departments to make sure that that you know we, we coordinate with legal to get the nudity writers written we coordinate with costumes and makeup oh, wow. if there has to be a yeah. prosthetic um but now with covid i I'm usually my biggest collaborator is the health and safety department to talk about how are we going to protect these actors when they when they're right. in these intimate scenes together so so you've only been an intimacy coordinator under COVID. <laughs> yes. So yeah, imagine I, the freedom I, you'll have soon. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait to take that mask off. I just can't. It's and I always do like Zoom meetings with the actors before before we shoot because right. I'm like I want you to see my whole face. Like I want you to know what I look like and I want you to know that yeah. you can trust me. Because um, when I'm there, like all they can see is this. Um, yeah, yeah, that does sound like a lot of navigating. It's like they, I mean, to to establish a sort of like being safe and secure. I mean, they're pretty much relying on eye contact and posturing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the actors don't have to wear masks as as I mean, clearly because they can't wear them while they're performing. So, um, you know, right right now I'm working on a, a sitcom, and they rehearse a lot more than. Than a usual um, 
a film or, or TV series does that's just a single camera because um, they have like these long scenes that are right. intricately involved and, and um, they shoot on multiple cameras at the same time. So they rehearse several times during the week and the actors are so frustrated that, that the production studio won't let them take their masks off while we're rehearsing. Right. Now, <laughs> do they, they do it can't. in front of a live studio audience? No. No. Oh, I guess nobody's doing it in front of live. Nobody's doing it. I, I think if if it weren't in COVID, then we would because the right. the people who who've written and created it do a lot of like network sitcoms in front of an audience. Right. But, yeah, yeah, I've been I've been to several tapings of sitcoms, and they're just highly choreographed beasts. Yes. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's, hence, like, it's doing a play. Hence, it's really doing a play for camera. You know, it, that's what it seems it like is. to me. Yeah, which is why they have me now on <laughs> on staff yeah. each week. So, right. Yeah, and you're cause... you're in LA now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you been back to London? Because I know you're bouncing around there for a not bit. not since COVID. I've been I've been in LA um, ever since it started. Uh, I cannot wait to go back to London. <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, and when I started getting certified as an intimacy coordinator, there there's plenty of us here in Los Angeles. And my, my agent, um, said, you know, would you be willing to go back to New York if I get, got you more work in New York? And I said, absolutely. I love mm-hmm. New York. I love living there. Uh, and ever since, um, ever since I finished my certification, the only job she's been getting from here here in LA. So <laughs> right. what <laughs> so, is that process yeah. like of getting certified? Um, there are, there's, there are two different organizations in the U S that do official certifications, um, and that are in constant communication with SAG-AFTRA around what the guidelines are going to be for certification. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that's based here in Los Angeles is IPA and that's the, the organization I'm with Their Um, IPA stands for intimacy professionals association. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's one that's based in New York called IDC, which is intimacy directors and choreographers and, and coordinators. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we're not rivals or anything. We, we talk to each mm-hmm. other all the time or there are few, few enough of us in the world that we all know each other and we all talk to each other, or at least engage with each other on social media. Uh, and so IPA has a 16 week, uh, certification program that's by application and, and invitation only. So it's, mm-hmm. um, she screens very, um, very much uh, in-depth potential candidates. And uh, after that 16 weeks, you do a two-person, a two-person, it's been a long day, a (laughs) two-day in-person choreography workshop where you learn how to choreograph the scenes for the camera um, so that, you know, if, if there's a way to do it where the actors don't actually have to touch, then we learn how to, how to mask it and how to, how to coordinate their bodies so that it looks like they might be doing something that they're not really doing, mm-hmm. um, and how to use barriers and things like that. Um, and then after that, we're certified and, uh, we, uh, it, IPA actually has an agency arm. So you're invited to join the agency and they represent you and they, they send you out for work, which right. is great. Are there, um, I can't imagine there are a lot of people you know, that are in this industry. Like it, there are a lot of intimacy coordinators. Yeah, there's, um, the, uh, one of the tricks has been, and, and one of the reasons why we, one of the factors that goes into screening people is making sure that we don't have 
too many coordinators in one area to oversaturate the market. So we mm-hmm. try to keep on pace to meet the demand. Um, but that said, we're, we're working really closely with SAG-AFTRA to work towards um, in the next contract negotiation, having an intimacy coordinator be required on every SAG-AFTRA production that has nudity or simulated sex. And like they, they could them, <laughs> all of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's about, you know, getting, getting the industry used to us now, um, before we make that demand. Cause we, we couldn't make that demand in this last contract negotiation because uh-huh. there aren't enough intimacy coordinators in the world right now to, to meet that if suddenly overnight, every production right. needed one. But, um, so we're trying to find that balance of, um, how many do we need now versus how many are, are we going to need in, in three years or in two and a half years? So, um, so right now, like IPA has about 10 of us here in Los Angeles. Oh, shit. Um, that isn't yeah. very much at all. No, well, I mean, I, and, and there are other intimacy What's coordinators here like? that are with IDC. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's pretty good. Um, <laughs> shit, well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I need to I actually... I actually think you would make an amazing intimacy coordinator. Well, I, I was going to say about you. I mean, you have mm-hmm. such a sort of wealth of experience that I would believe would be very beneficial towards it. I mean, with your trauma work, with having a PhD, with, you know, having worked in theater, film and TV before, like everything sort of seems to line up. Yeah, yeah it's it's really interesting. When I first met uh, Amanda Blumenthal is the, the intimacy coordinator that I trained under mm-hmm. uh, who runs IPA. And when I first met her and I found out what intimacy coordination was, I said, oh my God, it feels like, like everything that I have been doing in the course of my life that seemed d- disparate and, and, and mm-hmm. just really radically different from each other um, now seem to all align right. into one career path. And, uh, and then I, in, in, we just, well, we're halfway through certifying a new group of people. And when we were going through that application process, she asked me to help interview people for the, the program. And almost every single person I interviewed said that same exact <laughs> and I was like, oh gosh, if I hear that one more time, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna scream. I but mean, then shit, I, there are only 10 <laughs> of you. There are only 10 of yeah. you, which makes it seem in like, Los Angeles, in Los Angeles. Well, yeah, don't they, wouldn't they, productions that are like production studios based in Los Angeles that are filming like overseas? We have actually overseas um, oh, uh, so intimacy coordinators that, well, like, um, like Netflix is a huge client and they actually paid, uh, Amanda to certify somebody in France and uh, they paid her to certify yeah. two people that they picked out in Japan. Like, two people, one person in yeah. France, they must be, de- yeah. I mean, they must oh, yeah. be working we have, we have on one non- person in India. Yeah. <laughs> we have one person in India. We have, uh, two people and three people in Australia, um, oh, we've got wow. a lot of people up in Canada cause there's a lot of productions up in Canada. Yeah. Um, and then London is pretty saturated, um, cause there's another organization that's based in London, um, right. named, uh, intimacy on sets that, um, that does most of the work in London. But, um, but occasionally, you know, uh, Amanda's been flown out to Prague to work on some productions. And, um, I, I have a really good friend who's a, a casting director for, um, for American and British studios that film in Prague. And she's told me that once, once COVID lifts mm-hmm. a little bit, then, um, then she can probably get me on some sets out there. Yeah. I imagine that there, I mean, 
people are working at a certain capacity now, which is nowhere near what it's at full capacity usually. Yeah. So I imagine the industry is only going to blow up more. <laughs> You'd be surprised at how much work is happening right now. Like yeah. they seem to have figured out how to do it safely. And so now everything is starting in production. Like right. I've, every other day I've been getting a call from, from my agent saying, are you free on this date or this date or this date? And, you know, I'm, I, I was on set last Friday because I was covering for another intimacy coordinator that's working on three different shows right now. And she had to, uh, and I've sort of been designated her backup. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, this week I got a last minute call from, from Netflix saying, can you come in and, and, for a rehearsal tomorrow and Wednesday and shoot Friday. And, uh, and then they, as I was on set, they were texting me, are you, what are you, would you be available to work with us for the entire season? Like on a weekly. Right. <laughs> so nice. yeah, it's, there's a lot going on right now. And it's, and even with, because of COVID they're being even more cautious around the intimacy and making sure that actors mm-hmm. are really comfortable with with what's happening. So I've mm-hmm. been brought on to to navigate, you know, a kiss, um, which isn't something that we usually do. But uh, but hey, I'll I'll I'll, I'll go sure. on set and do that. <laughs> sure, <it's work. laughs> you want you want to pay me for it? I'll come on set. Sure. Well, I am yeah. very excited for some new movies to come out because <laughs> it's oh, been slim pickings. There's there's going to be some really <laughs> good stuff. I, I I usually I sign non disclosure agreements, so I can't tell you the right. things that I worked on. But um, but I mean, I have worked on I worked on a really cool independent film that should be coming out in a couple of months. Um, I worked on, I worked on a really great, well, the one thing I can talk about, I, I worked on season two of Netflix's Gentified, which is just a really, really cute show. Gentified. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. about a, um, a, a, a Mexican American family, like multiple generations um, fighting off gentrification in their Boyle Heights neighborhood in LA. Is it bilingual? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's like a younger generation. Um, the younger generation all speaks English, but then the older generation all speaks right. Spanish, and they and they they speak to each other in in multiple languages throughout the course of it. It's really it's a cute show. It's a comedy um, comedy drama, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's it's been um, popular enough that Netflix ordered a second season, and so they mm-hmm. amped up the inti- the, the the spiciness of the show uh, and yeah. had to bring me on for it. Um, so that, that one, I can't wait till it comes out. I absolutely loved that, that cast and crew and showrunner and, and it's adorable. I imagine some of the movies that have come out in the past, like few months, well, I guess I have no gauge because they could have possibly come out way before them, but they just happen to pop up in theaters in Denver. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine we're probably shot before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, there's only been like a couple of times where I could totally tell that this TV show was being shot and released during COVID. It just looked <laughs> weird to me. Like there's nobody in Very the background. There were no yeah. background actors. Like yeah. why are they on this street with nobody like, around? 
four four person cast. Yeah. Well, that and and they're um, standing ten feet apart from each yeah, other. Yeah, totally. There was this TV show which just it threw me for a loop. It's called Big Sky, and I believe it was mm-hmm. it's on ABC or something. And like everyone's just going about their business. There's no masks. I'm like, oh, this was obviously not shot. This was shot before the pandemic. And like. <laughs> During the third or fourth episode, this guy comes into this like sweater shop or something. And like he's just like, I want to get a sweater or something. And he was looking through the sweaters. And then randomly the woman just like comes up behind him and she's like, Oh yeah, that's a discount because we're having a COVID sale. <laughs> I was like, Why would you mention COVID in the show and then not have people wear Nary, masks? not a single mask, no social distancing. And there's like some scenes where they're just like at truck stops and things. And like it made, I was like, that threw me for a loop. It made zero sense to me. Yeah. You know, it's, I, especially early on in the pandemic, after like the first few months of the pandemic, um, I, I would watch a show like that I knew was was filmed like years ago and it would there would be like mm-hmm. a big party scene and I would start to get anxious because nobody was wearing a mask like there right. and there was one a scene I think I was watching old episodes of the West Wing and like the president is coming in like with the flu and like sneezing and, and like nobody's wearing totally. a mask and I'm like wear a mask yeah but things, then yeah they really stand sh- out right now yeah but then shows that try to incorporate covid um, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, like they, when they want to try and incorporate it as part of the plot line, my friend was like, I don't want to see that. It's like, true, I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah. I, I live that. I don't want to see it in my entertainment. I don't want to have yeah. to be exposed to that. So yeah, I don't know all of the shows you. I've worked on, they don't mention it at all. Right. And yeah. I don't know about you, but I've noticed also my um, interest or taste or, um, yeah, interest or taste in things has definitely morphed during COVID. I I just find myself like things with heavy, intricate plot lines, multiple subplots, so many characters that like really take a certain amount of focusing and concentration to follow are out the window. I go through, yeah. I, go, I can't even make it through one episode. I'm like, that's too much. There's too many things going on. And like yeah. things that are like very deep and like, there's just, I'm like, I, I can't watch it right now. Like I yeah. just, I have no bandwidth for any of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had to rewatch some, some previous seasons of some shows that I've been up for, um, working as an intimacy coordinator on. And Mm -hmm. some of them are those very complicated plot lines where you really have to pay attention. And I'm like, do I, (laughs) I have to, it's work. Like I have to, because I have to know who these characters are and what their relationship is to each other. And, um, and you know, if I'm going to be able to understand the scripts when they send them over to me, but it just, yeah, it was the last thing in the world I wanted to to watch in that moment, which is why I'm so happy that it, I'm now working on my second comedy because right. comedy is a happy space to be in. Everyone's fried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Just fucking fried. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 That was, I mean, that was why I really liked, uh, that's why I really enjoyed w- working on Gentified because it's, it's a comedy, but it still actually is like standing for something and says Meaningful, something and yeah. it's it's got heart to it which um you know the, the the show i'm working on now is is adorable and it's hilarious but you know it's it's a sitcom yeah. um you know but uh but it's a fun place to work it's a fun group of people 
Yeah, I guess because things also haven't been as saturated as before, like movies coming out like every week, it's made me yeah. really appreciate the gems that have come out like Nomadland. Uh, oh my God, that movie. Yeah. Have you seen I, I, it? I have not yet. Oh, I need to. I know it's on it's my list. It's on my list so for sure. Beautiful and like, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just very, well, it affected me very much. And like some other, like The Father, um, mm. that film with Anthony Hopkins. Um, and there were some other films that came out too that were just like really beautiful and simple and just mm. like really great storytelling. Minari is another one mm -hmm. um, about, I believe, the, the Korean immigrant family who moves to like someplace in like a rural farming country in America. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. But just like these stories that are just like so just simple and like beautifully mm -hmm. written, beautifully acted, beautifully told. Like I really have such appreciation for that, like especially yeah. now, you know? Yeah. Like I don't yeah. want... I've, I've also just because I... Going to the movie theater is my favorite fucking thing to do yeah. out of a lot. In addition to seeing live performance, like I have subjected myself to like Kong versus Godzilla just to go to the movie theater. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck is yeah. this? I still hate this shit. Like, why am I here? <laughs> <laughs> but I just wanted to be in a movie theater. I just wanted I the know. popcorn. I know. I that it's one of my favorite things in the world to do too. And you know, I'm I'm one of those people that I love going to the movie theater alone, like just with nobody totally. else. Because I I don't want somebody talking to me while it's going on. I want to focus on the film. And I want to be like I want to be like shoveling popcorn into my mouth. Like I don't want to yeah. like be like yeah, I don't want to sit next to someone where I feel like I'm self-aware of the fact that I'm shoveling popcorn into my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh yeah no i'm um yeah i miss it i haven't i haven't been to a movie theater since since covid but um oh but i miss I, it i heard arclade is no more yeah yeah and what happened there LA, did they just they didn't get I, I don't bought know. out. I guess, they just went out of business. No, I think they're they're just going out of business. And but they they did declare that the the Cinerama Dome here in LA is going to be like a historical landmark. So it it will it will remain right. uh, because ArcLight owned that movie theater. Um, but yeah, it's so sad. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, the Cine. I I went to the it's the Cinerama, right? Mm -hmm. The last thing that I saw there was when they re released Alien, like maybe Ooh. two and a half three years ago, two and a half oh. years ago. And I went there with a bunch of friends um, yeah. and they restored it and re-released it. It was fantastic. Alien is one of those movies that you have to see in a, <sighs> in a movie theater with a so really good. good sound system. Like there are things that I discovered about that <laughs> film that I never, that I never noticed before when I watched it in that kind of an environment. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it's, it, uh, and the whole Alien franchise itself is so vastly different because of the the very vastly different mm -hmm. filmmakers, um, directors yeah. that they had working on it. Yeah, like four was trash, <laughs> but like the first three one was second, trash. I almost walked out. Three on was three. interesting. <laughs> was so it was like mad. a really weird arts art experimental art movie. It, it was. And like very understated, very art noir. Like it was very weird. But the first yeah. and the second one are so good and so vastly different. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, cause I mean, that's, you've got the difference between, um, God, was it, <laughs> it's been a long day. It's Ridley Scott that did the first one, right? Yeah. 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 And then James Cameron, they're just two completely different directors. Totally. Like you're, you're in one, you're going to get this, like the tension that you get in that first one with the super slow build. Um, and then with Cameron, you're going to get pure action. Um, yeah. But uh, but I love both of the, those films. Um, I, yeah. I can't say that I've liked any of the films that came after them. But no. I love those two. Like even the those even two. like Prometheus, and then mm. what was the the ones after Prometheus? There was like I forget what it was called. It was an alien film. Yeah, I know which one you're like talking resurrection about. Resurrection or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll yeah. go and see them just because I just love the whole franchise and just yeah. think it's fantastic. But yeah, they are kind of yeah. trash. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they look beautiful, but they are trash. Yeah. yeah. They're just, re- for some reason, there's been like a re-releasing of David Lynch films in the Denver area. And I've been like, mm. I just saw Blue Velvet again oh. is restored and i just went to see Mulholland drive and it's been a fucking while for that one i i love <laughs> david lynch films i absolutely love them but i i have to say i probably have to watch Mulholland drive again because i i honestly did not get it no it's, and you it should, goes you off the rails it, it, yeah I mean, the first it half the of it is like so compelling and then like the second mm-hmm. half of it you're like what the fuck is happening mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. just like totally yeah. off which the is rail. classic classic david lynch but he doesn't True. usually like throw you off the rails com- that completely like yeah. he usually like builds it to like to where you can almost accept it as part of the reality of the film you know i think so i think the whole twin peaks series was was genius the way that he he slowly introduced the the weird into that until yeah. you're like oh yeah i totally believe that there's this random you know backwards world with a um you know people talking backwards and <laughs> dancing <Right>. weird dances <laughs> but then the fire walk went through this total trash <laughs> yes it was that that's true that is true that oh that gosh. went off the rails but hey you know at least david lynch tries for it he he tries yeah. to do something interesting with his films but Speaking yeah i think that one of the oh, oh go ahead. sorry go ahead oh, I, was, I was just I was gonna, gonna say gonna bring up eric Allen, but like i'm gonna let you talk because <laughs> yeah. i think we could probably go down a really long alley oh yeah <laughs> with... weren't we gonna going down a rabbit hole <laughs> yeah. or, a long, or a long alley <laughs> or a long alley um no, I was just going to say uh, in terms of going back to the the films that I've been seeing lately, I think the one I, I've been really bad at not watching all of the the Oscar nominated films and award nominated films and all that because I've right. just been I've just been working a lot and I'm when I get home, those aren't the Do you movies get I want to watch. You get like the screeners? I'm you... I'm not a SAG after member, so I don't get the right. screeners, but I also they still send them out on DVD and I don't even own a DVD player. So, no, God, <laughs> so I, I have that? friends that get them and pre-COVID, I used to go over to their place and watch the screeners, but hopefully like they'll start streaming them. Um but the uh promising young woman um shook right. me. Especially given converse- what I do. I want to hear you. Yeah, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this because I've had a conversation with a couple of friends about this movie. <laughs> and some people are really on the fence about specifically about the ending itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even not the ending where, well, I'm just going to spoiler alert, not the ending of what <laughs> happens in the, in the bedroom itself, but the wedding part of it. The wedding part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I. 
absolutely loved it. Uh, but it shook me. Like, I don't know that I would ever watch it again kind mm-hmm. of film, you know, like I, uh, but I absolutely loved it. And, and I loved um, the way that this, it, it was structured in that um, we, we don't have to see graphic depictions of sexual violence in order to understand what their traumatic impact is on a, on a person. So I was really, really glad that they, they never showed what happened to her friend. Um, we just mm-hmm. saw the aftermath of this impact that it had on her and the trauma that, that she was living through and the way that she, she walked through the film with a power like with, with like standing in power that she knew she had a power over these men uh, in the beginning because she knew that the moment they realized that she wasn't drunk, they were going to be, I mean, they were cowards for getting themselves for, for trying to put her in that position and take advantage of that situation to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I think that she, there was this knowledge that she had that because she knew something that they didn't, she had power over them. And I saw her in the film progressively, trying to push the limits of that power. And there, it was a really powerful moment for me. I think the most powerful scene for me was when um, she was just stopped in the road and that guy um, pulled up and it like was honking behind her and pulled up next to her and called her a bunch of names. And she just got out of the car and like smashed his windows and his taillights mm-hmm. and everything. And that was the moment when I knew it was going to shift, that the power was going to shift, but she knew it. Um, so that's why the ending did not surprise me at all. I hated it. I mean, I hated, I hated that it had to happen the way that it did, but it was the only way that it could have happened. Um, and so for me, that was incredibly powerful. And I, I'm a personal believer that male directors should not tell rape stories. (laughs) So, uh, I, I, and you know, I just got a, um, email from me or text from my agent the other day saying that there's a, a male um, student filmmaker that wants an intimacy coordinator for his thesis project at, a, at a, one of the local film schools. And it involves a rape and a murder. And I was like, <laughs> do we really need more male directors, especially like students, student films um, depicting graphic images of sexual mm-hmm. violence. So, um, but I, I think that the, the way that, that the story was told was, was the way that where the where she where the director placed the focus I thought was really interesting in the film yeah. and yeah without knowing um, anything about it going in I actually thought it was going to go a little bit more by way of hard candy do you remember that movie with um Elliot Page I did not see that well it's it's a little I mean it's like violence enacted on the male like torture and things like that so ah, I thought that okay. like she was gonna like torture or 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 like murder these dudes that's what i thought it was going to go in that direction i did too and i was so i was thrilled that it didn't yeah but i also i loved that 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 tension was played around with um as like a reversal of the situation that that the men thought that they were putting her in so it was like the the male characters were were thinking that they were going to go into this to enact, uh, you know, I know they probably didn't perceive of it as enacting violence on a woman, um, but they were going into that moment um, prepared to enact violence onto a woman. And because we as the audience knew something that they, they didn't by knowing that she wasn't really uh, incapacitated um, made us, oh, I think, 
consciously aware of the possibility of a reversal. And yeah, I thought she was going to, I thought she was going to murder him. And, and, and yeah. I thought that the, the film like deeply implied after the first one without showing you what she did, that maybe that is what she did. Um, and it was not until the next one where we saw the full interaction that, that we knew exactly what happened in the previous um, encounter. Right. So I thought, I thought it, it, it like threaded that needle really nicely of, of implying violence without actually having to show it and then providing you some relief when you were, uh, I think maybe a false sense of relief <laughs> that maybe mm-hmm. this film wasn't going to go down that path. Uh, and then, you know, set you up for, for an ending that infuriated a lot of people, but I think was, was the right ending of the film. Yeah. Well, realistic if that's such a thing um yeah in terms of probability possibly yeah yeah it reminded me a lot of of the novel um not not in terms of 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 content but in terms of of the journey that that the main character is on it reminded me of the the novel the awakening um where it's just suddenly it's Kate Chopin and it's, it's like a late 19th century novel where a, a woman um, who's being groomed to, to, I think I can't remember. It's been a while since I've read the novel. I can't remember if she's actually married or if she's like in, engaged to be married to somebody. And she just has like an epiphany one day mm-hmm. of, Oh, this is all societally constructed bullshit. And I don't have to follow these rules. Right. <laughs> um, in the end she ends up killing herself, but <laughs> in order, it was one of the, one of the pieces I read for my, for my dissertation. Um, but, uh, but she, she killed herself as an act of empowerment of, and, and this is, this is what my dissertation was about, which mm-hmm. is why I think ties all the way back into, to promising young woman. Um, I, I, I firmly believe that she knew exactly what was going to happen when she went to that, to that, um, uh, location at the end trying not to spoil it but i think we kind of have (laughs) just discussing it but it's been um, out for a while people it's been out for a while yeah (laughs) so when she goes to the bachelor party i think she knows she's gonna die i think she she knows she's not gonna gonna survive and in a way like my, my dissertation was all about um characters who commit suicide as a final act of agency when they realize that there is no other way for them to um to have agency over their own body that the only active agency that they can have is to, to kill their own body. And, um, and what message do, do they communicate when they do that? Um, and, and they communicate them as the body communicates a message through how they choose to do it, what audience they choose to perform it in front of, um, you know, what, uh, what la- whether or not they leave a note behind um, to convey another message, um, like, and I looked a lot in the dissertation at what what does what does the body speak to us? What language does it speak to us about what that character wanted us to to feel or think or or experience through their death? Um, but then also looking at how how that message gets appropriated by by men all the time uh, <laughs> in, in the dramas as well in order to cope mm-hmm. with the trauma. Um, but, uh, but I think that's what promising a woman does. And it, it's, it's a choice that she makes. She has full agency in what happens to her in throughout the entire film, which I think is, 
is something that that women, particularly women who have been traumatized by sexual violence, know that they don't usually have in a public space is agency. Right. Yeah, there was something there was that moment that like all of a sudden put me into like a rom-com where they were dancing forever in that store or yeah. that convenience store or something. And I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. I hope this movie doesn't like all of a sudden she's found healing and like now we're yeah. just going to be a rom-com the rest of the time. There was something about that moment. I'm like, oh, this could go in a really bad way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that was one of the geniuses of the, of the film of, of his voice being on that recording. Right. Um, you know, not actually showing us the video, but just hearing the voices and, and just that devastation of, Wolf, like heart drops into your stomach when you hear his voice and um it were you know in terms of structure it reminds me a lot of um you know romeo and juliet is is an italian comedy up until that one moment that you can't take back when uh right. when tybalt kills um mercutio you know I and just then from saw... that moment on we're plunged into to a tragedy um speaking of romeo and juliet i just saw Oh fuck! It was part of some festival. It was part of a festival, and I watched it online. It was a new version of Romeo and Juliet. Shit, and I forget. Oh, the is name it the one with it. Jesse Buckley, or is it? No, it wasn't a okay. state. It wasn't a film stage. They. It was shot entirely on social media, so it was entirely. Oh. You just saw people communicating being Instagram stories and Instagram and I believe Twitter and like Instagram live. Like that was the entire oh, wow. communication. So it was, it was, li it lived entirely on social media platform. Wow. Um, and they, the way that they, they just gave each other voice messages. So like you saw things happening and then also at times when the violence was happening, it really looked like a third party sort of putting up, um, taking a video or a, a, a mobile phone video of the violence, much like you would, you see now is like the mm -hmm. current thing with police violence. So mm -hmm. um, it was done very much that way. Yeah. And it was interest. It was super interesting. I thought it was a really cool concept. The only thing is it kind of, it was a lot of the same and it fell a little mm. flat after a while. Um, yeah. I kind of was like, okay, I get it. And I'm feeling a little disconnected by it at this point. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, COVID has made everybody be, try and be a lot more um, creative with how yeah. we share stories and how we tell stories. And some of them I think are successful and some of them not so much. It was definitely the most innovative con actual actually contemporary take on a classic play that i've ever seen though like mm -hmm. it's not just like okay let's let's put Romeo and juliet on stage and let's have them pull out an iphone like yeah. that, you know very much like throwing in those sort of you know contemporary references but this felt wholly new new yeah, yeah. a yeah, new way of seeing this particular thing that felt yeah. very relevant yeah i remember like 15 years ago no maybe not that long ago like thir 12 13 years ago i was teaching for a semester at cal state northridge and i know i remember there was somebody that was there um who was doing research into the incorporation of social media into 
theatrical performance. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember where they, I don't, I didn't follow up with where they went with it, but I just remember having a conversation about it that was really fascinating. And I, d- I couldn't figure out at the time how you could do that because, you know, 12 years ago, we all we had was like Facebook and Facebook. <laughs> and, you know, Twitter was kind of starting up, but, you know, it wasn't wasn't as, as widespread as it is now. We don't didn't have, you know, um, live streaming on those platforms at the time that, that mm-hmm. I, at least I was aware of if it, if it was possible, it wasn't broadly in use the way that it is now. Yeah. But, yeah. It's interesting. Oh, so Eric, so back to Eric. N. <laughs> so Eric N's resurfaced like, and is now as yeah. a professor or is some type of lecture in residence in Arizona. In, uh, Maybe I don't remember. New Mexico. New Mexico. Is he in New Mexico? I believe so. Okay, because you know one of my one of my fellow um, intimacy coordinators is um, based in New Mexico, Christine McHugh, mm-hmm. and she worked with Eric for a very long time. And I think she mentioned to me that she she saw him pop up, and she was a little upset that he hadn't reached out to her. <laughs> right. She's in she's in New Mexico too. Yeah. Yeah. Is he is what's he te- is he teaching playwriting? I believe so. I thought you said that he was doing seminary school for a while. He was. He's done. Okay. He okay. Gr- that that was that's been done for a little bit, I believe. Okay. Um, okay. I think I shared that with Meredith, and she said that's the most Eric N thing I've ever heard. <laughs> totally. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, but I was thinking about Eric N because I did this four month training which was all all virtual but it was a Mm four-month training in transgenerational and collective trauma specifically around genocide and u.s policies abroad and um colonialism but Mm -hmm. i was with um it was global so when i would go into when we go into breakout sessions and rooms and things i'd be like It'd be like five of us. One person would be in Japan. Another person would be in Ireland. Another person would be in West Africa. So it was really kind of this global community working together on this specific thing. And it really reminded me of Eric. Mm. You know, I should reach yeah. out. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I, it's <clears throat> so interesting to thinking back on that, that time when we were all working together on that project, it was, it was a really impactful experience Mm -hmm. for me. And it was a very monumental, um, just moment that, um, that I really felt like, you know, I I think I came onto it just short, shortly after I finished my PhD. It was only like a year after I'd finished my PhD. So it was Mm -hmm. a really, just phenomenal way of when I was working with Eric and with all everybody on that project of putting all of this theoretical work that I'd been doing on my dissertation into actual practice in, in performance, which is something that I was always, always fascinated with doing. And I think that's why I didn't stay in academia because I, you know, I, I do love teaching. I love teaching Mm -hmm. about this stuff, but for me, it's far more um, impactful to, to actually physically, be in space and figure out how do all of these theories play out in, in a real performance or in, in the real world. And so it was, it was just a really wonderful time for coming out of that dissertation writing and all of that theoretical work around trauma and seeing how can we, how can we express this together 
mm-hmm. in an actual performance. And some of those performances in that in that project will remain with me for for if, if not if not the details of it, just some of the visuals. I mean, I think the one that that you directed um, was Shape. absolutely yeah was stunning visually. Um, I mean, brilliant performances as well, but I still can remember some of the images that you created in that. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. And I think Orlando's, um, the one that he directed, I can't remember what the, which one he directed. I just remember of all of the Eric and plays in that cycle, it was the play mm. that I understood the least <laughs> and the way Orlando directed it. I, I got it. Like I put all the, puzzle pieces together and i think the the productions that were that more successful was. did that which i'll have to look it up um it was yeah. one of the shorter ones it was only like about a 10 minute play 10 or 15 minute play oh okay yeah ours was yeah like <laughs> yeah play. i mean it was long it was like a full yeah. play yeah 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 but uh yeah i think the productions that were more successful were the ones that that made eric's very complicated language and stage directions um uh use use them as an opportunity to connect to storytelling and yeah. rather than just being weird for the sake of being weird i think it was well when so the yeah that came after so i when i directed i directed the saint plays and mm-hmm. i believe we did like five or six of them in one evening it was a lot mm-hmm. it, was, it was a lot to chew on but yeah. I asked Eric if he would write a new play um, for the production. Um, and that was really, being in conversation with Eric during that time really helped me to start to understand what he was going for with the what seemed like an impo- impossible things to solve in stage directions like Mm -hmm. impossibilities like yeah (laughs) how do you even how do you even put this in a performance yeah like stage directions like the wolf jumps over the moon and eats blah blah blah. i mean it's just like these big impossible (laughs) images um yeah yeah. (laughs) Uh, which really helped helped um be able to kind of like navigate shape but also like too we really did kind of like i mean that ensemble was just so amazing um they really kind of i'm like we don't have any money for music (laughs) so they (laughs) they came up with like new songs together they were just like all like start jam sessions and rehearsal and like dane wrote a lot of those songs with the company just came up with them yeah yeah it's uh i remember i was i was applying for a i was i was one of the final candidates for for an academic position um uh that um at pepperdine actually and they brought me out for an on-campus interview and they had asked me part of the the appointment would be to direct a play um in their season and so they had asked me to present to them what play i would like to to 
to do in the season. And I reached out to Eric and I said, would you be interested in maybe letting me um, use one of your plays or are you writing something new that you might want to, you know, mm-hmm. have free, free academic money to, to play around with and, and, uh, and workshop. And so he sent me over a newer script, a new script that he was working on that was, um, it was really fascinating seeing a, a work in progress from him versus seeing something that, I mean, Eric would say that, you know, none of his scripts are ever really done. And, right. you know, I always remember him in the rehearsal room saying, Hey, if it doesn't work, cut it. I'm, I don't care. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But then to see, to see a less polished version of something that was much more stream of consciousness, um, I could really see where, where the structure came into um, to his, his plays that had developed more. And um, unfortunately, that I, I got the sense when I was in the interview that um, that they had already selected a show right. <laughs> that they wanted me to direct. That mm-hmm. was very different from the one that I proposed. Um, and about half of the faculty were incredibly excited about the possibility of doing an Eric N play with Eric actually involved in the production, and the other half wanted to do. I don't even remember what the play was like, something like Death of a Salesman or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Uh, or no, I think it was, it was something like, um, August uh, or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that, Noise is off. but, it, but it, def- it, it was definitely not an Eric N play that they yeah. wanted me to direct. Um, so yeah, it was, um, I, I, I really wish I'd had the opportunity to, to work on that one with him. Cause it would have yeah. been a really fascinating process to, to work with him in that capacity and see how, how his thought process worked. Yeah. Eric N is one of the kindest, most generous people I have and most just like brilliant, um, brilliant theatrical sculptors that I've ever, ever met in my life. And I'm just going to like, I'm just going to put this out there, but I, I advise everyone that's listening to this to look up Eric N, um, see if you can get some of Eric N's plays wherever you get books, but it's Eric E R I K and the last name is E H N. And I'm telling you, you know, even if you don't like reading plays per se, it's just like they're so theatrical and so beautiful. And there's like so much to chew on that just like even reading them and letting the language sort of wash over you is an experience in itself yeah yeah absolutely yeah i taught i taught a course at nyu a few years back on um uh, uh u.s theater history and it was it was the second time i taught the course um i taught it at csu northridge a few years several years before mm-hmm. that and i taught the course from the from the from the the point of view of my my mentor in my PhD program was um, named Tony Kubiak. And he wrote a book called Agitated States that's Mm -hmm. all about looking at um, what is the American psyche? Uh, What what does it mean to be an American? Do we have a collective American, uh, not consciousness, but a collective American identity and what is that? And how can we determine what that is through our history and our relationship to, uh, to theatrical performance. And it, right. it's, it goes all the way back. He goes back to the, to the Puritans and looks at their, um, especially because they were a, a anti-theater. Um, but he looks at the inherent theatricality and the way that they performed being Puritans. And, um, and he talks a lot in the beginning about um, 
how do we connect that thread to that to um, to an America that has um, a mass shooting? Um, well, now like multiple times a week. Uh, back when he wrote the book, it was uh, you know, he was talking about um, Columbine, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so like we, it was a constant conversation. And we he talks about you know September 11th being a performance for a uniquely American audience. And so we we use that sort of as a framework from day one in talking about. Um, how is our inability collectively as a, as a, as a, as a people, um, not individually, but collectively as, as a people, how is our inability to determine performance, um, distinguish performance from reality, um, part of our problem as Americans? And he linked it to, um, to things like school shootings, to, um, domestic terrorism, to, um, the con man, uh, like basically predicting Donald Trump. Um, and when I taught the course at, at NYU, I finished the, the last play of the class was, um, I, I selected a couple of the, the, I, I think I just selected one of, of his plays about the Virginia tech shooting. And my students walked into right. class that day, but they, they walked into class the day it was due. And I told them I, before they read it, I said, don't worry, there's no quiz on this play. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not going to ask you. <laughs> they didn't know that there weren't going to be any like plot points that they would be be able to discern. <laughs> I well, said, you there's know, no I, quiz. Just read it. Just let it wash over you. And I swear by the time yeah. we are done with class, you'll have something to latch onto with the play. Um, we did yeah. those we did the Virginia Tech plays at the Kennedy Center um, as yeah. readings with Force Collision. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little yeah. familiar with them. Yeah. I there's a, a, When I asked him to send it over to me, I didn't realize how many plays were in that cycle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think I Are selected there like 100 one. or something? Oh, yeah. It's, well, there's one for every victim. And then there's five from the point of view of the shooter. And so I think I selected one of the ones from the point of view of the shooter because that was that was more relevant to what we were talking about in the course. And um, and uh, yeah, I just I think I did an exercise with them where they sort of explored through movement what those stage directions meant in in the play, yeah. and um, and it connected a lot more for them. Uh, again, going back to trauma and the body, and mm-hmm. and how we how trauma enacts itself in our bodies. And um, how can we not take those stage directions as literal, but think of them as as a way to create story and shape through the body? Mm-hmm. That's something I have them explore. Um, yeah. Well, before we say goodnight, I want to ask you, what's one thing that you're hopeful for in 2021? Ooh. You know, I... I it's been it's been dark you know 2020 was not good mm-hmm. <laughs> 2020 was no no um but no i i'm incredibly hopeful um i mean there's a lot to not be hopeful about but one thing that i'm really hopeful about um particularly related to the work that i do is that uh, i mean in in the spaces that i'm in 
my job was was created and was, was necessary because people, a lot of people in this in, in the film industry were abusing power and were taking advantage of mm-hmm. actors and were, um, you know, if not physically and verbally abusing them or at least manipulating them and using power to to exert control over them. And with the increasing um, use of of people in my position on sets, I'm seeing so much kindness and compassion. And I don't think that it's people have had a revelation of, Oh, we need to start treating people differently. But I think overall production companies have, have discovered that it's a liability to keep hiring people who are serial abusers Mm. and that the stories that I'm being asked to come on board to help tell are so much more diverse and they're being, um, they're being created by, people who are genuinely kind and loving and caring human beings. And I think that when we start, when kind, caring, loving human beings who actually care about what message they're sending, not just through their art, but through their, their environment that they're creating that art in, I think that we as collectively as a culture are going to start seeing some more films that have beautiful heart and incredible storytelling. And Mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer that that's, that's how we connect to each other as human beings is through that kind of storytelling that we can all um, gain something from. And, and that that is one of the things that can contribute toward changing the world and making it a better place. So, or just put um, more women, black, brown, <laughs> indigenous yes. women in leadership oh roles in, film and, in the film and TV yes. industry. It's not yes. papering the well, walls with white straight men. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, that's that's why I loved working on Gentified because it was the most diverse group of people I think I've ever worked with. And they purposely um, put people, uh, people of color and women in positions of power mm. that they would norm- not normally have and gave them a chance um, and to do jobs that they hadn't been given an opportunity to do before. So, mm. and the cast is diverse. This, the, the, the character story arcs are, you know, um, and know, is the first a, season out on Netflix? Mm-hmm. I'll have to yeah. check it out. Yeah. yeah. The first that, season's out tonight. It's, it's one of those that's like the first couple of episodes take a little bit of getting, into but then like i think by the third episode it really hits a stride and and now having i know all of what happens in season two i think they it mm-hmm. grows even better like they they found a little bit more of their voice in oh, season cool. two so yeah yeah it's cute it's a cute show i love it <laughs> and the people were just absolutely divinely mm-hmm. lovely to work with on that show creators and performers so. Yay. Well, well thanks have... for catching up yes, and spending this time. This I was know. Fun. I'm sorry it's I went been... dark, but my um <laughs> my light blew out. I think the batteries ran out. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> my <laughs> it, like, it's overcast here in LA today and like my I'm just I'm not getting darker. I'm just seeing yeah. my pictures getting grainier and grainier, but we're having a blizzard um, here at the moment. It's like the second <laughs> one of the week. <laughs> it's the third week of April. I know. It's, Denver it's is like, crazy. It's just like, you know what? You we're just not ready to release you from the dark night of the soul winter <laughs> you've been going through. So we're just gonna give you another blizzard. <laughs> oh. Well, it was it was cold and overcast and you know, sixty-five degrees in LA. So yeah. <laughs> Sym- sympathy. <laughs> Alrighty, oh, well, stay in yes. touch and Absolutely. have a good rest of your evening. You too. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, bye. Do you have any questions, feedback, 
or want to share a story about reconnecting, you can drop me an email at imissyoupodcast at gmail.com. Find and follow the show on Instagram at imissyoupodcast. I Miss You is hosted, edited, and produced by me, with lots of help from the universe. This episode was recorded at House of Pod in Denver, Colorado. Our podcast graphic was designed by Ian Sklarski. New episodes are released weekly on Wednesdays. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and show some love with lots of stars. It really helps. If you would like to support I Miss You, as well as get additional content and access to our members-only Facebook group, where you can connect and share with other listeners, consider subscribing to Patreon. You can find a link to Patreon in our Instagram bio or at our website at imissyoupodcast.com. And finally, reach out, connect, and spread the love by telling all of your friends about our show. Till next time, new friend.